friends, how's it going? Zig coming in at the top of the interview. Today I have the one and only Joe Lally from Fugazi, Ataxia, Mesmetics, and Koriki, and from the solo project, Joe Lally. Um, today we get into it, we get into some philosophical discussion, some music discussion, it was a really, some neurologic discussion. This was a really cool interview. And you can tell these are years of insight from someone who's lived their life in DIY, doing it themselves, and in being around inspired people. That's what we need, especially now when things are looking grim and things are changing for the worst. And if we really want to make that positive change, it's about who you are and what you do and what you stand for. People see that. They see what you do and get inspired by that. And then they do something. So these are the guys we really need to hear right now, the true DIYers. If you're not familiar with Joe Lally's playing, listen to this. That was the bass intro to The Waiting Room by Fugazi off 13 songs, arguably one of the most iconic bass lines in punk rock history. Joe's got a very specific style and sound, and it's vast, and he does a lot of different things where that sound's changed, and it's really, really cool to see all his records and his work where it goes from punchy and catchy like that to spacious and experimental. Um, Joe's got a new record out with... Koriki, which features Ian and Amy from the Evens. This record is a fast rocking record with harmonies and everything's really well done and tight and I cannot recommend it more. Go check it out. It's on Discord Records. Um, and we're going to get to the interview. So if you hear anything you like, if you can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, it'd be greatly appreciated. Here's Joe Lally. Did they get the gig podcast? I'm hanging out with Joe Lally. How's it going, my friend? Good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. So I'm going to jump right into it. Now, when you started playing bass, it was inspired from um, Peter from Dag Nasty, right? Well, uh, together, we he, he was a year younger than me, and we had an art class in high school together. Um, it was an art class you could come from other schools to go to. So he actually, I transferred to that school, you know, all my friends were bused somewhere else. And I went there so I could attend that art class. It was three periods. And he came from Blair High School, and this was Einstein High School in Kensington, Maryland. And uh, what happened was, is we definitely started to talk about punk rock together. So in that art class, a lot of music listening going on. And uh, I don't know if I really turned him on to Joy Division, but, you know, we just got pretty obsessed with Joy Division and public image. And uh, we ended up seeing each other after he had gone off to go to school in New York. And, uh, you know, we we're both out of high school. Um, we saw each other at a minor threat show. And it was kind of coming out of that show that we we just decided like we better start a band and he was going to sing. So I said, I'd play bass. So I didn't really know a damn thing about what I was doing, but I went out and bought a bass, bought amplifier and shit. And, you know, probably asked a friend in the obsessed, like, okay, now that I got this thing, what am, what am I doing with it? And I have really have no memory of what Mark, his name is Mark Lowey, L-A-U-E, Mark Lowey. 
Gotcha. But he, he probably pointed out some things about playing the bass. I have no idea what. And then um, Peter and I just began writing songs together and just did our best, like recruiting people to play with us. And we did a couple of bands together. Okay. So like, um, was there something like maybe in your subconscious that was like bass, I can handle that or bass. That's what I want to do. Was there like a, like music with your maybe family experience with music? Was there something about that low frequency that stuck out to you prior to like, just being like, I'll do that. Yeah, there was definitely something that was going on from uh, when I was much younger. Um, family was not a music type of family. My brother had bought a decent stereo, so it was a decent stereo in the house. Yeah, but wasn't a big record collector. Um, but my next door neighbors uh, and uh, the youngest of four brothers uh, was my age. So his older brothers being into all this like R&B and funk and soul just had a huge uh, impression on me, you know, really from nine or 10, I started to listen pretty seriously to records at his house. And, uh, you know, there were like singles hanging on the wall, uh, James Brown singles. And like, you know, I remember getting into Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding from the Monterey Pop Festival version on that record. We did not really pay attention to the Hendrix side, you know, because he was apparently into drugs or something. And so that, that would come later. Um, but we paid attention to Otis Redding and then really getting into James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic, but mostly Sly and the Family Stone and Graham Central Station because Sly had played a show. He had played a show like a year or two before I started to become aware of all this in the DC area and his older, my friend's older brothers had seen this show, but uh, Graham central stations first record had come out and they were opening for Sly and Sly did not play. They just oh. did not come out and play. So Graham central station just carried the rest of the night. So he probably played Sly and the family Stone songs but he also literally just played anything I think that they could possibly think of and work with. And they kind of won over the DC crowd. So there were a couple of black stations, W O L and W O O K, uh, which I was listening to then. Um, I think they might've both been AM and, uh, which makes me sound about 170 years old. But, uh, that kind of, you know, made them a bit of a focus in the D.C. area. They became like kind of heroes locally for that. So their their records as they came out, you know, kind of got more attention maybe than some other places for that reason. And so we would hear that a lot on radio. And, um, you know, the first album I ever wanted was the second Graham Central Station album, Release Yourself, which is a totally insane record if you listen to it today. It's in a way, it's completely dated, and it's just weird as shit because it's like this high-energy high gospel kind of music. And uh, Larry Graham developed a way of playing that I never really was interested in playing. At the time, I was listening to them. That was interesting to me, and hearing him play that way and the fact that the bass not only drove the music, but he listed the credit as Larry Graham lead bass it definitely like stayed with me as i got older you know even though i got into classic rock after all that 
and it didn't have as much meaning to it. It's something that really never left me that someone had like reinterpreted the way the bass was going to be used. So uh, getting into that stuff, you know, was pretty weird at that age to take it so seriously, especially if you consider that there's literally no black people around me in Rockville, Maryland, where I live, which wasn't even Rockville. I was just in a suburb between like Bethesda and Rockville. And um, it just, you know, was, was kind of um, strange for that. But, but these, these guys I'm talking about, my friend's older brothers, the Bonanno family, they, uh, nothing to do with mafia. Um, they, they brought us being younger. I mean, it was nice of them to bring us like 11, you know, 10, 11 years old to these matinee shows that were happening at a place called Shady Grove theater that was in the round and couldn't have been that big because I was small at the time. And I, and it, my memory of it is not humongous. You know, it it might've just been like a 500 seat place. It doesn't exist anymore. So I, I kind of don't know. I've never looked into trying to figure out what it was but i saw the spinners and the ojs and uh the four tops and the jackson vive and the isley brothers at matinee shows and uh then saw graham central station after release yourself came out when i was uh, i guess i was about turned 12 and uh i came home at two in the morning and basically my you know my father was like that's that's that for concerts so what? <laughs> I kind of lost my ability to see shows after that and therefore got into classic rock and missed Led Zeppelin in 1977. Oh man. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is so cool that they um, just kept that show going. Cause it's so easy to kind of give in and not know what to do and be like, that's it. But that's so inspiring to see something like that and see as that makes so much sense why the bass would be so appealing because that was Larry Graham's thing. And uh, I didn't, I never seen the liner notes to that record and read lead bass, but that makes so much sense with uh, how he approached it and how he like sang and played too, which is as a guitar player, trying to sing and play bass is really, I don't know why, but much more difficult. I don't know. I know you play a little bit of guitar as well. Um, I don't really not, not much. Oh, it's true though. I did play on my last solo record. I did play some guitar, but, that was out of necessity. Yeah. Well, then you got a you got a guitar player midway through recording, right? Um, Elisa, I think. Yeah, that was no. She was there from the beginning, but she was really. Ju- I was like getting her to get up and play, and she had actually asked me if she could play sitting down when we started because she just had not played guitar on stage. It's- I think maybe one time. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I, I don't care what you do, you know, do <laughs> sit down, stand up, whatever you want to do. Um, but it, but I think she probably felt uncomfortable with that because I was standing up. So, gotcha. um, but yeah. yeah, there was just some things that she wasn't, she was kind of getting to know all that music and I, I was ready to record it. So I was, I was trying to get her into as much of it as I could and get her on the recording. So like I wasn't being forced to play, you know, shit. Yeah. So. That makes, well, it's weird. When you stand up for the first time and play your instruments, it's different. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, so yeah. comfortable sitting down. Because you practice, usually sitting down, it's like closer. You get like a different like grip or a different feel for how you can, it feels yeah. easier. And totally. like, uh, when you stand up with it, and I'm sure um, from teaching, you, you see this with um, some students. And I see it all the time with students I work with. Like, it's different. They lose all that, like, 
control they just gained and then they have to relearn it. I do. And I, f- I find it really weird with the bass because I'm looking at people and, you know, if they're just figuring some things out, however old they are, if they're just at the beginning, it's, it's kind of difficult to sit down and play the bass. I mean, you hold it in such a different way for what can be, you know, a larger instrument. It's just, I, I, I don't do well sitting down playing the bass. Yeah. I, and I have to, I can kind of rest and sit down sometimes like when we you know, have long practices, but in general, I want to be standing up and playing. It's way more comfortable to play and therefore a lot easier. And I don't like, you know, strain any, you know, muscles or anything like playing. It makes sense. Cause like gravity is kind of working with you. The headstock's pretty heavy with those big tuning pegs, yeah. you know, and it just kind of rests where like when you sit down, it's interesting. I find like, um, classical musicians especially the guitarists they like train and piano players uh, pianists they train to like be able to play forever like when a guitar player is sitting with his leg up and the guitar tilted up you know what i mean they're they're practicing like this way so it doesn't wear on their like joints and it's easiest to play and it, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's interesting how um how with bass you know traditionally you got the upright bass or like something you would be standing playing anyway yeah yeah my god that's a whole other thing which i can't <laughs> i was working at a local club for a while and when when i uh, saw one i'd always think about it, and eventually i asked a guy and because he had asked me to to mess around with some other things he had two bases who were standing there on stage like during us you know before a sound check or something and messing around uh playing these six string bases which was just mental which yeah. in Wolf was a pain in the ass. I, I, I really am good with four strings, but he had an upright there. So I was kind of like, give me a quick like tutorial on <laughs> the upright. Now, you know, what I found out was like, no way. Um, <laughs> but there, but there are uprights that are, you know, like a three quarter electric bass that are just smaller. And, and I probably could have a chance with one if it had like nylon strings and shit, but yeah, it's so weird to like how it looks easy. It looks if you play bass, you're like, oh, you just hold it different, but it's not. It's completely, yeah. uh, it's challenging, way more, and like the range and like how you, how you hear it. I don't know. It's strange because I, uh, I played bass in um, a jazz quartet for a while, and mm-hmm. like uh, they're always like, oh, let's get upright, and like I had a U bass. Did you ever play one of those? No, I've seen one though. It, they're sweet. They're like these. It sounds like an upright, but you got these big silicone strings, and like it's tiny. Yeah. So it was a They're weird, um, weird uh, looking band, but it sounded right. <laughs> um, so you said with Larry Graham, like, so he's, I mean, he's slapping that, like the technique was all right there with that. And you said you weren't too interested in playing that style, but appreciated how it kind of yeah, led the group. Yeah, I found out much later. I mean, really, it was just because it was like an extension of those things that he did in Sly and Family Stone. And then, you know that the fact that he had his own band, it was kind of like, um, you know, it was just the obvious thing to be like for us to be going nuts over. But, um, but really he developed that way of playing because his mother played piano and they would be playing gospel together at home. And so he was trying to be heard above the piano and the singing. And so he developed that style as a way of playing louder and playing uh, to, you know, probably using because there's a lot more high end on what he's doing yeah in a lot of what he's doing but he's but all of that technique i think 
comes from that and really makes sense as, you know, an instrument that he's making work with the piano, you know, in a room that you can just, you can just kind of hear it like, you know, wanting to be heard above piano. Um, but anyway, by the, yeah, by the time I was picking up bass, I mean, I certainly just wasn't hearing that style of bass playing. Um, I was hearing, you know, hearing Peter Hook and Jaw Wobble are really the things that, you know, them kind of bringing it down to one bass line a song sometimes yeah. really made me go, whoa, like, I understand something about this. And I, and I just had a particular vision of how bass would work. And it, and it, of course, embraced everything I had been listening to because I had gone through quite a bit of music by then. And that was fairly diverse music, you know, and, and I could just see the parallel in funk and the repetition of funk and stuff like that, even though it's not really true. You know, Booty Collins is not like he's not necessarily playing the same thing over and over. Oh, yeah. So it's really uh, it was really that I I could sort of put into, you know, um, what's the word, but I, I could, I could make something out of this vision I had that didn't necessarily stand up, you know, if you'd really try to hold it as a theory on its own, but I, but it made sense to me and I could see the direction that I could take playing bass. And so Peter and I both loving those bands and talking about this stuff, you know, we kind of aimed to try to make that work and it didn't always like work that way anyway. It's just that we tried (laughs) And, and it was always kind of my vision that I never really moved away from that vision. And so by the time, you know, I did a couple of bands with Peter that played like two shows each. And then I, I cut my left hand, a couple of fingers to the bone and Whoa. at work. And that, that kind of put me out of playing for a bit. What and I actually, for work? sorry, it was just a, it was a weird accent because it was just in a warehouse that held, tapes but they were banded uh to kids so it was the metal banding so it was just literally like a a thin metal blade you know that really is not that sharp or made for cutting but my weight went against it just falling just taking a very short fall my weight went you know my hand went out and it went against one of those things and i slid down it (laughs) man yeah how like what fingers was it were it well, yeah it was my ring, ring and middle finger and it actually also cut my index finger but only a uh, um uh, you know superficial cut the other two yeah. my middle finger needed to i needed to go back and have an operation because piece of the bone oh, got so and they they had to clean that out and and a guy who a surgeon who who actually built fingers out of i mean i don't even know how to explain it they were insane <laughs> photos on the wall of children who were born with only you know a a thumb and three fingers and he would construct a fourth finger for them that would slowly like come into play in there you know and there were these insane like butthole surfers looking (laughs) polaroids of of fingers growing in people's hands like it was completely insane um but anyway uh, I kind of played drums. I got a drum set and played drums a little. I was trying to do a band with Bubba Dupree from Void at the time, but we just ended up like living in a group house together during that period. And um, I, I tried playing bass with him at first, then had the problem 
you know, with the accident and then kind of uh, moved in with him later and then tried drumming and just, you know, just kind of failing at everything I was trying to do with people, starting a band and then um, quit a really good job that I had in order to go on tour as a ro- roadie for Beefeater. And Beefeater was a Discord band that yeah. went on 1986 in the summer. And uh, that's how I met Ian because a singer lived with Ian and they were leaving from Discord House before the tour. And um, I spoke to Ian briefly then and then came back from that tour two months later and spent the night there because I didn't really have anywhere to go anyway. So I was just kind of down for continuing the work as a roadie. So kind of saw through to where the equipment was going and uh, getting the van back. And then, uh, and then I started, and then I kind of kept roading for them and, and they did, did two more shows and Ian saw me sing. Um, I would get up and sing pay to come with them during the tour. So then we did that for the first show they played when they got home and the second show turned out to be their last show. And, um, I think, you know, just talking to Ian about the tour and the, um, you know, roading for the band. I mean, I think he just knew that I was like psycho enough to be a roadie that I was decent material to be serious about doing a band. And, um, you know, it just, he asked me to play without seeing me play bass basically. So <laughs> that's, uh, well, that's commitment and belief for sure. Like, uh, one thing I think it's important, like in is going through that failure and I working with students, try to like embrace that. And like, it's nerve wracking to try something and fail at it. When you mm-hmm. were going from, an injured hand to try and drums and all these bands like was there's this thing that always rang in your head that you'd be able to the bass would come back just need to heal up and like was there like an inner voice that kept going with that or did it just so happen and or through to trying some, other yeah, things did you find your way to back to degree. it yeah for sure to some degree i mean i kept my bass i uh actually the bass i had at the time when i went on towards beef Theater, i left with a friend and, and therefore I had that drum set too. And I left that with him and he actually sold my bass to somebody. Well, right. <laughs> thanks bud. <laughs> I know. We won't go into that. <laughs> I, I, it, it turns out that I actually don't talk to that guy now. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd understand why it's fucked up. Um, but, uh, but it, it, it was, um, it was a weird bass. It was a Gibson bass and it was probably like, too much of a bass to deal with, but I ended up, I ended up with an even crazier bass after that. And, uh, but I, but I was, uh, seeing a local band and I had, before I lived with Bubba, I had lived with, um, a couple of group houses, but one of them was with Wino from the obsessed and a couple of other guitar players, uh, Victor Griffin from Pentagram, who they were called death row at the time they practiced at the house and the obsessed and a band called asylum who later became unorthodox. Wow. Uh, their guitar player, Dave Williams, known as Dave Flood. Now his, his, uh, I mean, uh, Dale Williams, whose brother Dave was the first drummer of the obsessed. And that's how I got to know the guys in the obsessed. I, I met Dave at that same art class. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, which later Damon Locks went to that art class, Jay Robbins, um, I believe Steve Gamboa and, uh, I don't know if Ian Sfinonius did, but um, I just can't even remember all the people now that I'm starting to think I'm imagining half of them. But there were a bunch of bunch of punks in this area that had gone to that that class because it was half a day and you could come from other schools. So 
it turned out to be a, a place, a bunch of, bunch of punks had studied art. But uh, anyway, I'd met Dave there and he was older than me and he always talked about his band. But it took me a long, I met him in like 78 or 79 and I, I didn't go see him till 1980. And uh, <laughs> oh, Wow. Put it uh, off for a minute, but. Yeah, I just couldn't. I mean, he kept describing his band doing like Sex Pistols and Damned covers and stuff, but then they would do their own like heavy rock, and I was just like, "What the fuck?" You know, it doesn't make any. They had long hair, and it just didn't make sense to me. And then I saw them, and I was just like, "Fucking great band," (laughs) you know. (laughs) And they were, and I was seeing them in those shittiest little bars in D.C., you know, and they would just fucking destroy. And they had a singer at the time, and uh, and when they lost. Vance in 1983 is their singer. Like, you know, Wino started to sing and they became a completely different kind of band in a way because they were Wino's songs and he was really, you know, singing them. They were interpreted in a much different way. They came across much heavier. Hmm. And then he was, he just went through a pretty incredible writing period right then at the, at when he kind of took over singing. And uh, that music just really stuck with me and that, that became the, what was known as the purple album for the obsessed, the first album they got recorded and that, you know, seeing him play a lot. I mean, you know, I was, I was definitely absorbing their music big time. I didn't really understand how to play it, but living with him, I was literally falling asleep to them practicing at night because I had to get up early to go to the job I had. That was, that was a good paying job. So like I, I would literally fall asleep to them practicing, which was not quiet. But uh, they their music definitely entered my bloodstream from that. So uh, there, you know, that was a lot. That had a lot to do with um, Ian and I beginning to play together. He knew that I came from that crowd, and uh, or at least that that scene, you know, from Maryland to a degree. You know, even though to that scene I was kind of this punk, and to you know. To Ian, I was part of the obsessed gang. You know, it was pretty funny. And so when I met Ian, I had long hair, and uh, <laughs> that's um, I ended up cutting my hair, and he continued letting his hair grow, and he ended up with his, like dreads practically. And um, at the beginning of the band there, but um, anyway, we started to play when Ian and I started to play together. We really were bringing a lot of the obsessed into our talks about what we were doing and Wino had made him a mixtape that we just started to analyze and try to understand. And, you know, I still can't figure out their lines because the bass and guitar are like tuned differently and they're turned into one sound so well Mm. that I can never like really extract what the hell the bass is doing in that music. But, but it's really beautiful music. It's a heavy rock, but it's got a lot of soul to it. And it means, means a lot to me. It's super. It's super interesting, like how everyone was kind of brought together through this art, this art class, and like, which makes sense because I, uh, I did the same type of thing in high school. There was a, a vocational school where you did multimedia, so it was all like digital art, and I met a lot of people that were in the really cool music that inspired and like changed my mindset from there on out. But it's really mm-hmm. interesting how all these little groups and how you kind of. Either with living or with working or with learning, with all these people melded together, and you and Ian, everyone probably had their own like perception of who is who, and then when it all comes together, so through kind of living through this and being surrounded by um all these creative individuals, that's kind of what 
kept you going and even though your hand was like injured it like i can do it type deal because it seems like yeah. that crowd is the we can do it type deal well for sure there was there was a hell of a lot of inspiration around me because of what was going on you know at the time i it took me a while like all through, through going to high school and going out to shows there was someone in that art class that i took between the end of junior high school before high school started my art teacher in junior high school recommended me to go to that art class to change like my high school I was destined to go to and to go to this other high school for it. So I didn't have any friends there, you know, to be distracted by. And I just hung out in the art class all day, basically. And um, that, you know, friend that I met during the summer who was older than me, so then left before I finished high school, he really turned me on to punk rock. His name is Ivan Martinez. And he, you know, was older, so he had a car. So he took me to see, like, you know, the B-52s in 79 and The Clash. And we went and saw Evo um, in Baltimore at a show they played after the first record came out. And uh, all those, show, you know, those first shows, the B-52s, you know, the, there was no audience I'd been around like that. So that was really, it like, kind of scared the shit out of me. And even though it was a B-52s show, <laughs> it was fucking heavy, man. Yeah. And I have to say, to, to this day, like, watching any footage of Ricky Wilson playing guitar, I mean, that guy was intense, man. He was a he's inspirational He goes player. at it, <laughs> definitely. And um, he just, that was a wicked night. The way they presented what they did... And there was no bass and, and uh, the girls dancing, everyone dancing so hard and him just standing there playing so hard and so concentrated and just getting, you know, like Ian would later, like a, a pool of sweat around him on the stage. I mean, he was like that. And um, all those shows, seeing the cramps, you know, then too. And in, uh, I guess in 1980 was that first show, Brian Gregory had just left and, um, all, all those things and all the other shows I got to see around those times going out, I did not discover that there was a local scene. It took a really long time for that to sink in. Um, I was seeing these people closer to my age who are at these shows, and then it wasn't until I was—I mean, my memory of it was going to see um, was going to see the Dead Kennedys play, and that's a little bit later. And, you know, there, or, or maybe, maybe I just found a flyer to see, cause it wasn't at Kenny's show. It was just a flyer to, to see local bands like Void and Faith and Marginal Man or something, you know, at, at Georgetown University. Um, I mean, at George Washington University at the, um, what was that place called? Um, Martin, I can't remember what it was called, but anyway, that, they had um, the Marvin Center. They had um, all everyone in the audience had just started to go like, I see these people all the time. And and I had really seen at the Cramps show, I had seen the Teen Idols play and I just totally did not pay attention to them because it just didn't make any sense to me. It looked like it had something to do with what had gone on in England like a few years before. <laughs> so I just thought... That there was this weird recreation of this thing that had passed going on, which is so strange, but it, I think it had to do with public image and the idea that the Sex Pistols thing was over. Yeah. 
So that thing had ended and Leiden had already taken it into something else. And so I was like, what is that that's going on? You know, I mean, it, it did eventually I would, I would of course embrace this whole concept of hardcore and like what was going on locally, but it took me, you know, till then to figure it out whenever it was like 80 or 81 or something. Cause I saw, I saw the bad brains the first time in, in like 1980, I think they played with the obsessed and that would uh, be a show for sure. Seeing the bad brains, especially in the eighties, uh-huh. that had to be intense. Yeah, you see, Ivan took me to see them at Madam's Organ, which was a you know a group house that yeah. had shows, and they just didn't play that night. So I, I I did. It took me longer to understand who they were, and I think at that point there was only it must have been seventy nine. There was only the single that was out, which Ivan had recorded. He was recording the. Georgetown University's radio station, the punk show on um, WGTB. And I mean, they played all, all kinds of DJs played punk music, but he recorded pay to come off of that. So I had heard that, but I still, I just had no idea of this idea of, con- you know, hardcore as a, as a kind of music or anything. And I had heard the dead Kennedys from the deaf club, uh, live at the deaf club album. Yeah. But I, Still didn't put that together because you have to understand I was hearing Dead Kennedys, Tuxedo Moon and Pink Section are all on that record. And I love them all, but I loved, I probably liked Pink Section beyond that, you know, more than anything. And I sought their albums out and, and found like an EP and a single or whatever. But I, but I found, you know, Tuxedo Moon record and I loved Half Mute. It was a hugely influential record. I didn't realize till years later like going back and listening, I realized how much that sound and the way the bass works in that on that record really stayed with me. And it's still a very listenable album today. It's, you know, you could call it like, you know, very new wave sounding or something. Maybe it's dated, but I don't find it that dated, you know. I find other music to be incredibly dated, you know, more than I more than that bothers me. I still I still find it inspiring, but uh, I just had no clue about the scene. So I could hear something like Live in the Deaf Club, hear those bands and not even realize that there was this correlation between the Dead Kennedys and the Bad Brains that I just had no idea about, you know. I was still learning about, like, who Black Flag was, you know. Yeah, well, it's all, like, happening then. And, like, yeah. it's, it's weird, the local the local scene, even now with all this social networking and all this ways we're connected, it, the mm-hmm. local scene seems to still be like hard to see in like, it, at least in Cleveland. I don't know in DC uh-huh. or Maryland, if it's the same, but like, it seems I think a, it, it's yeah the same way that you knew where to pick up the flyer to learn about whatever, yeah. you know, you, it's even now, I think you've got to kind of tune in to the right, couple of clubs or a couple of venues or a couple of whatever they are that put on shows, whether they're houses, bookstores, whatever that, you know, kind of a venue is. And now of course, God only knows. Yeah. It's websites that are streaming things that are having things. And I haven't even gotten into that Yeah, because it's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around, but it's going to come around. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing it. That's the only way you can look at music. There's bands, people I want to see. I'm going to start watching them that way anyway. So, yeah, it's a weird it's a weird transition to like make your living room now the venue and like even 
to play in front. I don't know if you've done any live stream shows or anything like that. It's your whole audience is now a sound technician. They're always like, well, could go up a little bit. And it's just a, (laughs) it's a weird interaction. Cause like, I haven't, I haven't had the chance yet. I, I want I thought that that's what the aesthetics would do, yeah. that we would immediately start streaming ourselves playing in our practice space. But it turned out that our practice space being over a restaurant, mm. they just kind of used the excuse to like kind of shut down the people who were practicing upstairs. So we, we suddenly were immediately locked out. And, and actually, I have not got together with the aesthetics since early May, March. Gotcha. Is that, when did you guys do a tiny desk? We did, yeah, we did that long before, okay. and uh, yeah, I just thought, like, well, of you know, between us and Kariki, like the band that's going to be doing that, I, I thought it would be the Mesthetics, and then we got shut out of our place. So I don't know when you know it might ever happen, but uh, we'll see. Hopefully soon. Those records rip. That guitar player you play with, yeah, Anthony's in Reds. He's, he grew up right outside of DC in uh, Vienna, Virginia. Okay. What yeah. is it, um, and with the the Korlicky, Kor, Koriki? I keep saying it wrong. I've been yeah, you can, to... just say, you can just say Koriki. Koriki? I, I, you know, okay. I would have probably, I, I, I don't think my vote on how to spell it, so people would just say Koriki when they looked at it, you know, didn't get very far, so. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading that record title and like talking to myself, trying to say it right. But, um, mm. so with that one, you guys are thinking about streaming that too, because that, the release of that was an interesting debacle with everything that, uh, cause it was about to come out and then everything shut down. Oh yeah. Just, it just sat there and you know, that was going to be right when we started playing weekends. It was March that we, the Kariki was finally going to just start playing weekends, you know, like Ian was just going to feel out. He was only booking shows like two weeks out, you know, because they were in small places. So yeah, word would travel pretty fast and then we'd have you know people show up and that worked out fine but it you know their schedule was just freeing up to be able to do that and then uh and then we didn't (laughs) so we lost all of that and we were gonna do a little two-week tour a week or whatever we were gonna do in early july so all that went out the window do you think uh maybe are you uh maybe there'll be a streamed version of some of that or like moving on to the next record type deal. Uh, yeah, for now, I mean, unless the right thing comes up, I'm, I'm always up for doing it, but it's, it's not a total consensus in the band. So I think it's, you know, I think there may be a while before somebody sees us doing anything, but we, you know, we get together a couple of times a week and we write and that's just kind of the main, you know, it's always been the main objective of the band because we did that for three years before we played our first show. Wow. So just yeah. writing, every rehearsal is kind of like bringing parts together and trying things out? Yeah, we totally rehearse. I'll never be so rehearsed for a show, unless it takes us three years. <laughs> Wait, the next show. I'm serious, because we that show, I, I, you know, I was a little bit nervous before we played, and then when we were playing, I was like, I don't know if I have ever known material this well before the first time I played it. That, that was pretty crazy. That is, because, I mean, with Fugazi and with a lot of, like, projects you've done like that, like, in the Mesmetics, like, it's all very complicated stuff. There's a lot going on. Like... And definitely there would be a lot less time before 
you wrote a song and you played it live. <laughs> Do it. Um, the harmonies in that sound amazing, which is kind of on the ask about with a so covering the bad brains right was that was your first time on the mic yeah okay so was there what at what point did you like want to continue and start writing your own songs and like singing them? well I, I wanted to sing in the beginning you know as one yeah. as one does one imagines themselves doing something they can't fucking do and all so I, I played with a couple of local, local guys in my neighborhood, like literally on my street. And I, I was, was a guy across the street who played bass, so he was a bass player. And guy down the street played drums. So I, I was going to be the singer. And we, we tried to like get a guitar player and get going. It's just a band that never even you know had a name. Yeah. So we never got anywhere. Um, so it was always in my mind. And then one of the things I tried doing with Bubble was like if I'm okay, I can't play bass. Oh, okay. I can't play drums. I'm going to try and sing. And I was like, okay, can't do that really either. So I just, you know, it's just, I just thought about music obviously day and night. It was the only thing that, you know, really occupied my mind. And, uh, I was a bit of a, a bit of a druggie in that I, I, that was occupying a little too much of my time. So, I didn't care about the job I had, although it was very a nice job and good for me. I really didn't like it. And I started to equate the idea of the job not doing anything for my um, ability to get away from the drugs. So hmm. um, it was probably like taking mushrooms, I think, that I always attribute to like getting a clear perspective of what was going on and making me able to you know, make a decision to look at things. So I would take a chance like quitting a perfectly good job because I felt it was going to be better for me in the long run to get away from the thing that was making me unhappy. So I got away from that and tried to just surround myself with people who are doing something different, thinking different. And I got into that van with Beefeater and they were trying to, to all be vegetarian for that tour because half the band was half the band wasn't. And I was basically like, bring on anything new to give me something to occupy my time with, and uh, I will go on the tour with you. You know, so I knew the guitar player because he, Fred had gone to see uh, the Obsessed. So I had known Fred from like 1980, and uh, then he had gotten into this band and was like, "You got to come see my band." So I, you know, see him at shows. He would tell me that, and then I went out and saw the band and loved them. So then I just was always at their shows, and then he told me one day at some show we were both seeing that that they were looking for a roadie and i was like please 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 take me with you save my fucking life and he did he totally they didn't know who i was you know and they fucking took me on that tour and it did and i i just i lived in a van and i really got a whole better take on life ever since then and you know and i stopped i stopped taking drugs from that point on basically and um it you know, it's just a, that kind of thing where you know, taking a chance and feeling like you had nothing to lose taking that chance, and uh, and it's just making things like clear for you, and you know, the road ahead seemed pretty clear. I it, the tour though made me feel like, well, man, if people don't dig this band, how am I ever going to do music anyone's going to care about? So I really came back with the idea that there was no way I was going to end up in a band. You know, and uh, 
then they broke up on top of that. So I really wasn't thinking, you know, highly anything I could do. And at the same time, like during all of that, really, Ian was asking me to play with him. And I was just like, okay, sure. I mean, he's serious about music. I didn't have any hope in anything working. Um, but it just one step at a time, the whole thing just made sense and came together piece by piece. And I had, a, I had, you know, some people from, you know, because I was with a different crowd of people, I think some of those people looked at what I was doing and was just going like, you know, fuck you, <laughs> <laughs> which is just the way people are, you know? Yeah. Anything different. It's like, but it's amazing that complacency, like just being where you are leads to this kind of degeneration of like your thoughts and your inspiration and like just taking something like where you are and throwing yourself there's something magical about the van right being in the van yeah. and just being away from everything and only worrying about what's coming next and making it to the next thing is like so like how you said clears the mind and like it's amazing that they that they took you and like that's such a cool story and now it changed everything and led to you meeting Ian on that level. Yeah, it's, it is, it is totally the most like, you know, well, it isn't the most, it, it, it for a musician, it, it's such a Zen thing to do. It's, yeah. you know, that is what to me over the years, you know, that is how I started to perceive it and therefore started to try to understand more about meditation. And I had done yoga from like 1980 nine like i don't know a relationship ending and and fucking with my mind so much that i went and did something to like have a proper look at my brain and uh and so i did that and and that kind of came back a little more later hmm. um doing it again and trying you know trying to do classes and understand it better but um but all these things about what music is and what it meant you know what it means to me developed over the years and and even more so when Fugazi stopped playing because I realized how much I still had to play music and I felt less prepared to do it because I lost the three people I had made all this music with. So I had a whole bunch of shit to figure out about getting my solo music out of me. And part of that was just trying to understand what it was about music that I, I really felt so connected to and and you know part of that was understanding that I was like deeply connected to the sound of the bass and like, why is that, you know? And so, you know, you just look at those things. It's not quite so important trying to explain why it's just recognizing it. It's recognizing like you are, you know, pretty committed to that vibration, that tone at that frequency. There's something about it that you're in line with. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to reproduce that you're communicating through that. You know, it's it's nothing less than everything for me. You know, I can keep talking about it, and it gets into, you know, uh, quantum <laughs> physics and everything. And well, I'm not, but yeah. that's super interesting though with the whole quarks and the vibration thing, and like um, on the quantum level of stuff, it's super interesting. Um, the rabbit hole to go down, but it's anything I think that leads to someone analyzing themselves in any way. If it's if it's yoga, if it's music, I think that leads to nothing but good things ahead knowing yourself is like the ultimate thing as far as um progress uh, self-actualization to some degree it, like it's what they say yes i can't i can't say that you know <laughs> i knew i knew the things i should have about myself in time but but i you know one does learn if one tries you know one yeah. learns more about oneself 
and therefore about, you know, Krishna, the philosopher Krishnamurti always said, like, you know, you want to understand the human mind, like, examine your mind. It's clearly the, the most readily available one. <laughs> so True. the better you understand it, the better you can stand, understand humanity if you, you know, if you look at it that way. That's a good quote. You dive into big philosophical reader or? I guess I've, I guess I've through things that, that I follow threads that, that, um, that, you know, are related that connect me. So I've, I was given once on tour after I was out, I was out doing my solo stuff. And actually I think I was in Belfast and, uh, and a woman gave me a Bertrand Russell. Oh, okay. Um, there you go. Uh, you know, book about the history of philosophy. The big but one? I, I really found, yeah. And I really found that it had, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of interest in a lot of them. So, you know what I mean? It's the yeah. thing that interests you. So what happened was, is Krishnamurti, actually, I have a friend, my very first uh, girlfriend, um, I've always stayed in touch with, and she, in 1986, she actually saw, um, before that, when I was in my first bands, when she was in the University of Maryland, um, we actually lived together right off, uh, we're practically on campus in a group house, but right, let's see, right after we lived together, we lived together in 85 and in 86, she saw Krishnamurti speak here oh. at the Kennedy Center. And, uh, and I remember reading about, I remember reading about his visit in the Washington Post and remembering that she studied him because she had a friend in college. We would sit around in her dorm and drink and shit. And, and her friend that she was studying philosophy with was singing Krishnamurti <laughs> and Rajneesh. He, he had made a song out of, he was playing acoustic guitar and making a song out of the philosophers they were studying. That's a way to remember it, for sure. Some exactly. devices right there. Absolutely. So that's why I remembered his name. And then I was reading the newspaper pretty randomly, and I saw he, he there was an article about his visit. And so I read all this, and it all stuck with me because I remembered she studied him. Yeah. And, and I don't think I found that out till later that she actually went to see him speak. And... Uh, but anyway, um, that so that kind of came in again through yoga. There were Krishnamurti books on a shelf in a class I was going to, and then um, years later, um, meditation started. You know that he had spoke that he speaks about because he he's also you know talking about doing yoga when you when you read what he because he only speak he doesn't really write he never really wrote books he spoke. And people yeah. transcribe what he in his talks. So anyway, um, that thread kind of turned into meditation. That medi you know, reading about meditation like brings you into Eastern thought. Eastern thought um, somehow um, along probably part of meditation brought me into um, well somewhere along here. I just started to equate. Uh, I, I really want to know more about the indigenous people throughout the world and then found that I had been carrying around a book about the very subject when I was living in Italy. And I only had these books that I had carried around with me. And one of them was about indigenous people throughout the world. It was just kind of crazy that that was it. anyway. So yeah, I read that. And then I started to, when I, I had some downtime in Italy where I had no work, I decided I should not play because I need to be home more. 
And I just started studying on a thread of things that I wanted to understand. So for the first time, I was really trying to do some proper like self-education. And so reading about indigenous people led me to uh, shamanism. And shamanism led me to like, not that I hadn't already thought about psychotropic plants, but it also led into psychology and led into, um, it just led, basically it led back to meditation. And it also led to, all these things are related quantum physics. And you can look up Paul Levy or Irvin Laszlo, L-A-S-Z-L-O. And uh, there's a couple of books, Science in the Akashic Field by Laszlo and uh, Quantum um, Quantum Revelation by Paul Levy. And both of those books that, you know, in the last few years I found out about really tied all of those things up together that I had been separately reading about. But understanding the common thread, these books, like, put those together uh, perfectly. So uh, if this interview is not shedding light on anything else <laughs> it led me to say that which i have not talked about in all of the interviews lately well awesome like it's it's crazy how all that's st- when you find the book that kind of ties different things together and you that connection you've been kind of wandering if you find a like when you get into a, a topic that leads you down that train of thought and you're like oh you know what the big and the small and find someone who thought about that too and then hearing that kind of back through the pages it's such a good yeah. feeling. <laughs> yes, so, yes, and then it goes. It actually does go. It goes as far back as you can imagine it, because you can't help but think somebody was was on to some aspect of this, you know, that ended up building what became the pyramids, because they built the Sphinx first, and that sat there for quite a long time before the pyramids showed up on the. Uh, you know, on that plateau, the Giza plateau, that's all like carved out of rock there. But it, it seems that the plans for it got mapped out and the Sphinx was made. And the Sphinx has water erosion around it at the base of it. Weird. So there's no way that it yeah. sat there covered in sand and got water erosion. So that means it was all green around that before, which means that the Sphinx, of course, had to have been built in ten, around 10,500 because that is facing directly east. And that's when I think it's the, it's the summer equinox that comes up or is it summer um, solstice that, that the, the, uh, that Leo comes up on the horizon just before the sun. And that's what the Sphinx is looking at. So of course it would be looking at a lion, not, they thought, that it was built in the time of Taurus, and it's like a bull. Why'd they fucking give it a lion's body? Yeah. So if you kind of dial back, you know, the, the night sky, that's what's going on. And uh, that that stuff, man, is just, you know, I'm not trying to get totally hippy-dippy, but that shit they just really can't understand. And it goes back to some insane planning and, and thinking, and uh, that, you know, it's that goes pretty far back. If you go back... In history, you find that history is kept by the people who won, you know, which tells you a lot about what the future is going to be. Somewhere in the future, Ronald Reagan is going to turn out to be one hell of a fantastic guy. And that shows you how fucked up the idea of history and and history keeping is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Trying to keep it. 
short and just stop there. <laughs> Try to keep it bright. No, it's good. That's it's fascinating stuff. Um, to kind of tie it back into music, with reading this Eastern philosophy and kind of getting this stuff instilled in your mind, when you were taking the next step from just playing bass to singing, there's like this. I don't know if it was the same for you, but when I kind of took that step into singing, it was a lot of analyzing what you sound like, listening back, trying to figure it out, and you just are constantly having this inner battle. Or at least I was. Um, did you find like kind of a clarity through reading these types of philosophies and moving on as a musician from bass playing the singing into doing both? Not necessarily. No, that that you know, these are all things that were just going on. Okay. Um, all tied together i was yeah i was starting that first record before i even ended up in italy before things got you know that particularly deep as far as like studying any of it went but um but still you know i mean it was all it was all kind of there so it's not like it wasn't always there in my mind thinking at some level it's just that i got to try to follow those threads of thought better because they're there in my writing you know before i am i am trying to understand more of it um you know the right the writing at that point is just kind of getting out what's on my mind about it at that point yeah. and it's always you know it's always a learning process and my singing yeah my singing never you know it never came together basically and i i'm probably a little better at it now cuz i think i just kind of relax and sing now when i go to play a show and i i don't fucking freak out about it because i really could not i could not settle into it for all three solo records so you know, they just are what they are and I can live with it because that's, that's what records are. You know, they are yeah. documenting a particular period. But there's something Eastern, there's something like accepting that within those philosophies, I think apply to accepting that these are timestamps as albums go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got, you have to anyway with yeah. music, you can't, if it's something you want to correct all the time, you live, you know, you live in like regret and you can't live like that. So now, I, I know we're looking close to probably out of time here, but I wanted to ask you about Ataxia and working with mm-hmm. John Frusciante. Now, that whole thing came together, right? It was like 12 days, and you guys made two records, right? Mm-hmm. Now, do, were you you were reaching out to play bass, or he reached out to you to play bass on his solo stuff, and like it just ended up becoming what it was, right? Yeah, we were supposed to just play a show where I was going to choose nine of the songs he and Josh worked on for John's solo records. And choosing from those, the three of us were going to assemble a set, you know, and then play a show uh, at the Knitting Factory. And that just turned into them realizing, you know, A, I couldn't figure out the nine songs. Like, I I played every one of them, I think, wrong in one way or another. And so instead of like correcting me through that and some of those songs actually needing keyboard and not having figured that part of it out and not being that far away from the show they were booking, (laughs) they decided that, you know, John was kind of like, well, I feel like I'm missing the opportunity of writing music with you. And so um, I was like, okay, that would make it easier for me. So I appreciate that. And then I just was trying to write music that I could remember 10 songs. Yeah. You know? And then, so the assignment for them was, I'm going to write one bass line and you have to write the verse and chorus and whatever over top of it to make it work. So as soon as we embarked on that, John started to record and that's where dust came from. 
So I literally played that like as the next thought, you know. Wow. So that that was probably the best of them, though, I have to say, because then I probably became more self-conscious about it and was like, now what am I going to do? I got to remember all this shit. (laughs) Um, And I and what would happen is John, John, I didn't know, taped that the first time we played it. Not only that, but he looked at his as he was watching the time and just after 10 minutes of it, he stopped Mm -hmm. it. And then he and then he did that systematically through the thing. So the next day we got together and he had the lyrics for Dust and a way to play it. But we also wrote two new songs. And then the next day he would have the lyrics for those songs because he would basically just stay up most of the night anyway. And then, you know, it just went on and on like that until we got to the weekend and he was just like, do you mind if we go record this stuff? And I was like, okay but normally any project like that would never have been recorded and become two albums you know yeah that's kind of the the difference between that and some other project where you never see the people again like as a as players like the three of us playing i mean we did get together once and do a show they we did a show where they did not want to rehearse and i was like this is a terrible idea but okay (laughs) And, and it was horrible you know well, yeah, because there was no rehearsal, like, and just to jump back but it, into it. it. But it was not our music. It was not that music. Oh, weird. So it was all improv? It was all to play anything. Wow. And it was just, it was just too much. It was, it yeah. was horrible. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I was going to say, because that can either go amazing. You got that, like, oh, we pulled it off. Yeah, yeah. Or it just, it crashes. But that's such that, a, yeah, and I have a different I have a different attitude about improv. I, I could get yeah. up and probably Im- improvise with somebody for you know forty minutes now and just have a completely different concept about it. You know, is there like a? But I couldn't then. Is a yeah, interesting thought about that? Is there like a when you're doing an improv type thing? Are you approaching the person and the vibe and making the basis for everything to fall off of? Or? Well, I'll tell you what happened later was that. An opportunity to to improvise, you know, which of course I wasn't crazy about because of that happening. Yeah, but it happened in Italy in Rome once. Um, Damo Suzuki come, came to town and he asked. It turned out somebody that I knew, Massimo Pupillo, who played in the band Zoo Zu, and they had been a backing band uh, for me on tour. I'd done a tour with them, and um, they. Uh, Massimo put together a bunch of local guys in Rome that, you know, who I had never played with. And they, and Massimo was brought his bass, brought his equipment, and he was just going to like have me come up sometimes and do some of the songs. And then he just proceeded to leave the venue before the show started, not to return. What? So the band started to play, and Massimo still wasn't there. So they were basically like, you're you're the bass player. Get up here. Uh. <laughs> what happened was not having anything as a guide, which I was planning to use Massimo as a guide for me to move into what he had been doing. I got up there and basically found the key everyone was playing in, and anything that I had written recently, I slowed the pace down into that key and applied it to the way things sounded. And and it and it just worked over and over, and everything that I because I intended to be repetitious about what I was doing anyway. I intended to to listen to what everyone was doing, 
my intention would be to go up and pull a repetitive baseline out of it that allowed everyone to continue doing what they were doing, but that I was going to do the same thing. And that not only did it happen, but when, because Damu Suzuki was singing and he sounds like you're in can anyway, yeah. <laughs> it just suddenly was totally can. It was fucking insane. <laughs> that's, it's interesting kind of going into it. And I guess like, that's kind of the mindset for a lot of uh, improv, right? You kind of come with these trait, uh, not trait, uh, you come with these linguistic m- things you express musically, that is Joe, or that is me, or that is whoever, and you apply it to the situation that you're in. Like, yeah. uh, it's. did you ever, um, kind of going off the idea of like Eastern philosophy, have you ever read any of Wick, uh, Victor Wooten stuff? I did read that book. I have a, I have a friend who... Yeah, a friend who's blind actually, who wanted to know if it was good, yeah. and 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 said, if it's good, if you tell me it's good, I'll get it on books on tape. And so I would have never read that book. Was it? Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I th- yeah, it's I, it left me with is Michael real? Uh, I thought it was a for me. It was a lot of like that's how I say how I think about things. It was like a, one of those like kind of going back to a book that kind of brings all these ideas together maybe a lot smaller ideas in this book comparatively to um, what we were talking about before. But no, it's really, it's the same thing because it's someone's concept about how things work. And it was to me, he, you know, he was able to get a whole bunch of points across really well. And it, and it also allowed me to feel like I could talk more freely about what, what it, you know, base is to me, you know, and, and what it means you know, when we play and that sound comes, the sound that we make, whatever we play comes from inside us. And you know what I mean? If you're playing the thing that you can hear in your head, yeah. you can literally play anything you can hear. I mean, I, I believe that. If you can hear it in your mind, you should be able to play it. Definitely. It's So if there's a truth to that, well, there's some pretty wild shit going on there. Because what is it when you hear something in your head? Like, how the fuck do you explain that to anyone? What is it you're hearing? Well, A, you're not hearing anything because it's not happening in the room that you're thinking about it in. (laughs) And yet, we can only describe it as hearing it again, even though it's a thought, you know. So it's it's mind-boggling. But so music just, the whole thing about talking about music is just completely insane. And, you know, being like, doing shows in Italy and trying to talk about music, which is what I did before, you know, before I played a song in my shows, I would talk occasionally during a set. I would talk about, I would talk about music. So try translating that. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, it's really, you're at a loss for words. It's insane. Especially in a different culture too, whether it's like there's different sound expectations and it's interesting. There's, they've done studies with um, uh, co- like cognitive perception of if you think about practicing something, it's almost as efficient as doing it. And in some cases, is more efficient. So if you think about running scales on your neck, like, like s- think about moving each finger in each spot, and maybe this is in Victor's book. I can't remember, but I recently... Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it was, but that would have been a good thing to remember. Yeah, right? Especially now when you can't play with people, you can think about 
thinking about playing with them. But um, and I've also read it in um some NMT books, which is Neurologic Music Therapy. But mm-hmm. like the idea of practicing thinking of it is close, to, like is mentally is close enough to practicing it that. And I think well, they found it worked more with musicians than with someone who had a different type of um, right. practice. Well, I do. It does. I'm glad to hear that because it does. It furthers, you know, my theory about it, which is that it is an enormous part of playing. Because if you're teaching people, you start to realize how much visualizing that template of where your fingers are going to fall on the fretboard, visualizing it in your mind and being able to, to replicate it. You know, even if you're yeah. just touching your fingers, those particular fingers on the scale to your thumb with no bass involved. You know what I mean? Just yeah. standing there going middle finger, pinky, index, middle finger, pinky, index, ring, pinky. You know what I mean? Whatever, that's the major scale. It's like yeah. if you just do that, it really is an enormous part. And I tell my students sometimes, do it without the bass. Get this visualization of what it is you're doing. Because part of what we are doing when we play is imagining what we are playing. It's Yeah, it's incredible that you're thinking, you're actively making what you're thinking happen. It's like a second... It is. It absolutely is. And how, to me, how long the notes last, the sustain of each note and how they come out, they are coming from your intention. They, they, they are translated, you know, yes, by your hand, by this object you're holding, but I do not believe there is any separation involved. And that's where the quantum mechanics come in, I guess. It all goes back to that, but it's crazy. It is. And even like, so I had a, I went to Cleveland state for music therapy and, um, our professor, came at us with a question we had to define everyone had like their own thing and mine was movement and the importance of movement right so i i took it in a weird way and i was like i brought up like an experiment for the class where i muted um a video of the rolling stones playing satisfaction and Mm -hmm. then muted and showed a video of otis redding from monterey pop playing the same thing and when you watch Mm -hmm. You, the Otis's set was so intense and like you feel like man this guy's you can feel that song without hearing it right so in my mind oh that's the motion being being conveyed and I had this whole thing ready to go present and I did but I realized the whole thing was without motion right there's not even a synapse there you can't even connect the thought from one neuron to the next without motion and that's the answer you're looking for I still did the experiment anyway it was fun but Interesting. It's it's weird that kind of going to a quantum level, even though synaptic uh, uh, connection isn't. That's more neuroscience, but I mean it, it's shrinking down closer to that, you know. And it's without yeah. that little peak of electricity releasing that neurochemical that is like, whoa, dopamine. These notes sound good to me, it, you know. Yeah. It's crazy how pers- like specific that is for an individual and how it all kind of boils down to just movement yeah it does and it's a bit and physical is i agree is a big part of playing i try to get that across to people that you know you you are dancing what you're playing is a dance not just of your fingers and 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 melody and so forth but like 
also a physical dance, uh, a musical dance between you and the drummer, yeah. between what the bass part is, what the drum part is, but then a movement within yourself. I, I've never been able to move around and play that well, but there is something that does help your playing that is movement, you know, very much so that, you know, even in the little bit that I do, it has its, you know, significance and therefore maybe because it isn't much movement, the movement that is made is very significant in what I'm doing. Definitely. You know, it has a big, very big effect uh, regarding, you know, time and, and emphasis and so forth and groove of what, what is happening. And then, you know, there's, there's whole, you know, the mambo and the samba and the cha-cha-cha. Those are actual dance steps yeah. related to the beat. It's, you know, the beat is what it is because of the dance steps that coordinated, you know, to that. So those are very, very interesting how that, you know, is played into the writing of music. It, it's weird that, well, two thoughts on that. Like, you when you when we hear music as when we perceive it, part of it runs through our mortar complex in our brain. So uh -huh. audio audio stimulus is running through our motor complex as well. So that makes sense why we have to move a little bit, right? Even when you hear something you're like you're tapping your foot, or like why certain cultures have these dances that are in the name of the music, like swing. We that's a feel. You know, but it's also a type of rhythm or like how you're saying with cha-cha or samba or uh, clave or whatever, like it's tied to a rhythm that you you feel. And even if you're not moving a lot doing it, you feel it. And that's how we like perceive it and how we write it. But an interesting kind of like thought process I've been working with my students a little bit or trying to convey to them is um, it's sometimes emotions are hard to convey, right? But we all can yep. feel that certain thing. So by writing music, it's almost like we can figure out how we feel and put it down here and transpose that to something else too. Like maybe with how we actually feel in certain things. Like uh, totally, yeah, totally. Part, that's I think that's a big part of the addiction to music and to live music is you know I've always felt that it's because we really lose you know there's kind of the death. Uh, the death of the ego is kind of happening, you know, where a group of people all bring their attention as the band does to the music they're performing. The audience brings their attention to the music that is playing and everybody is there as one yeah. during time. And that is what we become, you know, we want again, we want that feeling again. There's always people who aren't paying attention. But the more people who are, like, the better the experience becomes, you know. And we, and we like that. We like being in in that one solitary place where the ego vanishes because that is, you know, that's the part of the infinite. So that's what becomes addictive. Definitely. And when the, even just how it sounds moving the air, it's going through you. When you're in that crowd, mm -hmm. you feel that band. You're We're there for that. Like, uh, kind of a spinoff of that, when... I know who, I think, it, I imagine it's Ian, but there's that whole Fugazi Live page off Discord where all those shows are like mm -hmm. re uh, remixed and put out or are working to be remixed and put out. I was mm -hmm. diving back and seeing like, oh, where are the Cleveland shows? 
But like going back, do you ever dive through that and kind of like pick up on the vibes from that show? Like, oh, that was a that was a sweaty show. I still remember the stink from that one. No, I, I listened to a lot of those early on because I was I was kind of the first one to go like, let's do this. I may not have done the best job of it, but I tried to move you know the digital yeah like uh, marking of songs and so forth and get the first piles of them ready as CDs to mail out to people. But I listened to a lot of those and it's very hard after a while. It's very hard for me to listen to, you know, actually to even just listen to Fugazi over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I tend to not get any, I can't, I don't have anything like objective to think about it. So, um, so I haven't done it in a while, but I, I do know a number of those shows. Yeah. Gotcha. It's like, cause it'd be interesting. Like, as an audience member, that's the sound that was coming at you. You kind of went there to feel that and be in that. But on the mm-hmm. opposite side, which is where you guys would be mixing that, like, oh, man, yeah, the monitors weren't too good there. I can only hear Brad's bell, you know what I mean? Or whatever yeah, it is, you start to you get... You know, it's really... I got, luckily, I didn't have to get into that. And a lot of them got a lot of them got put aside. Ian digitized a ton of that shit. Jerry Busher mixed, might have done some mixing himself on some of that. And then a lot went to, um, somewhere in New York. Um, I don't know if it was the magic shop or somewhere else, but a guy took on a bunch of it for us at a discount wow. price to like deal with. And, you know, it was good to not have to do that. Cause I can't, I, I'm not good at that in the studio hearing, hearing the song a couple of times. I can't make a decision on it. It's like, it doesn't sound like anything anymore. I relate to that. So, it's, it's really hard. I'm, to I'm, kinda... Yeah. I'm much better at like set up the sound and that's where you spend the time and then record the motherfucker and move on. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to be the, was it? The producer end of it. And like, you know what? Hand claps or no, no, wait. ooze, ooze would be great here. You know what I mean? Like the kind of hear it for more than it is, is definitely it, an art within itself. It is. It's a, it's a whole other thing, which I'm, I'm not, my ears are too fried to, um, to actually be able to do that. They get, they get burned. I get that. I'm, I'm going to have to go, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Well, Joe, thank you so much for hanging out and talking. This was great. It was uh, definitely, I've been listening to your music in all forms for years. So the, to finally get a chance to meet, this was awesome. I really, really appreciate your time. And um, right. if you, I'm going to stop recording here, um, but I'm mm-hmm. going to keep talking. I did. All right, friends, we're going to close out with a tune from Koriki. This is Joe's latest release. I recommend you check it out. It's on um, Discord Records. Here is the single Clean Kill.